Twice a week, Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay dissect the biggest topics in Black culture, politics, and sports on their show, Higher Learning. They discuss the most important and timely conversations while also frequently inviting guests on the podcast and occasionally debating each other. Check out Higher Learning on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Good morning, my brother. How are you? We got Roy Wood Jr. with us today. Man, how the hell is you? I'm all blessed how and I deserve. You, but how is you? Man, eyes doing good. I, eyes doing, my bones ache a little bit, but eyes doing good. I, I, you know, I have some questions for you, but before we get too deep, I know this interview will air later, but this morning we just found out the news of another young black comedian who was gone too soon, AJ Johnson. Do you Yeah man. You have any memories of AJ Johnson? Any anything that stands out to you? I met Brother AJ a couple of times on the LA scene, you know, as far as like if comedy is high school, when I was a freshman, you know, AJ was probably a junior or a senior. So I passed and crossed a lot. But when they did, the brother was always nice and kind and always just funny in the moment. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. just one of them cats that just knows how to do it. Who was it? Uh, Chris Spencer said, you know, comedians, a comic is funny, but a comedian knows how to make things funny. Mm. You know, and so that's something that always stuck with me about um, about A.J. Johnson, man. Which is, that was one of them brothers that could just come off the dome immediately and just be hilarious. Gone too soon, gone too soon. May he rest in peace. We start each one of our shows, Roy, by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And you've done so so much of everything. You've done radio, news reporting, stand-up, you're filming shows. But I feel like stand-up is <laughs> is your is your go-to. Stand-up is your bread and butter. Talk about the decision as a student at FAM to get into stand-up and how stand-up served as the foundation for so many of the other things that you're doing. So... It's a, I've talked about this a couple of times, but when I was 19, I got arrested for stealing some jeans. And so the what type, thought at what the time What type of jeans was, were you stealing? FUBU? 
Tommy, Tommy, Tommy dog, it was 98. Tommy. Be respectful. <laughs> Fubu, Fubu didn't really pop till like, oh, well, no, you're right. Fubu's mm-hmm. around that same time. Yeah, I, I give you Fubu. So, you know, there is this idea of, oh, man, I done thrown my life away. It's over with, you know. And so stand-up was the thing that kind of kept happy thoughts in my head for the most part. And so comedy became this escape. So that's what I started doing, man. Like, I would legit take the bus to Atlanta to do open mics or go back home to Birmingham and do open mics and then take the bus back home, the bus back to Tallahassee, work at Golden Corral and go to class. I love Golden Corral. And that was it. And that was just my happy place. I used to, um, at the time, I don't know, I can't speak to now, but in 98, Florida State had way more student events than FAMU. FAMU would have the one comedy show a semester. You know, oh, usually or around, homecoming, around homecoming. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Or and if they did anything else, it was some student talent competition stuff where comedy ain't going to beat singing. You're just going to get up there and embarrass yourself. So don't even do it. But Florida State, I would put on a Florida State shirt, pretend to be a Florida State fan. And pretend to be a Florida. I had an FSU backpack, the whole lot. And I would walk my ass into them FSU student competitions <laughs> that were strictly for comedy. And that's also how I got to study stand-up early on. You know, there was a local comedy club in, in Tallahassee, but, you know, it, it was too far on the bus. It's just too <laughs> far. But Florida State, dog, I saw Earthquake mm. and Lavelle Crawford and Bobby Lee and just... So many, like Margaret Cho came through, Sinbad came through, you know, like all from pretending to be an FSU student. So when I graduated, I graduated um, in broadcast. And at the time, Ricky Smiley was the comedian on the morning show in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And Ricky, like, you know, I don't know how God lays stuff out, but I got to Birmingham the same year that Ricky was preparing to leave for Dallas to start what would eventually become his syndicated show that we know today. Mm-hmm. And so when Ricky left, there was a vacancy at the radio station. And so, you know, I kind of popped up there and was like, hey, um, I do comedy. I also am uh, have a degree in broadcast. And also my father. Correct. My father is my, like Birmingham OG. Yeah, that's what, that was my know, next question. In terms I mean, of radio. So, like, your father was an icon in black journalism. Talk about how your father and his work and your experiences growing up as his son shaped your orientation, even in comedy. So my father, for, you know, the people who don't know, you know, in this, you know, he was a civil rights journalist. That's the best sentence I can use to encapsulate. Yeah, that's that's accurate. If black people were suffering, my daddy was, well, let's go see. (laughs) (laughs) So this man was in Rhodesia during Zimbabwe now, but he was over there during their civil war. He was in South Africa during the Soweto riots. He was in Vietnam embedded with black troops on the front lines that were getting, like, killed first. All the people that died first was black people. My daddy was right beside him. Uh, Came back for the civil rights movement in Chicago. And then they started this uh, network uh, called NBN, the National Black News Network. It's basically... OG black Twitter (laughs) in a weird way. But it was the first radio news channel of its kind dedicated strictly to news, you know, with a black slant. 
And so, you know, and that he hired Don Cornelius mm-hmm. at that radio station at WVON. Um, you know, and so by the time I came along and he was in Birmingham, he was doing a lot of radio commentary and, you know, speaking a lot of truth to power. And I'd say the thing that I probably got most from my father was tagging along with him on his speaking engagements. And, you know, these churches would pay, you know, two hundred, yeah, three hundred dollars. And they gave you a plate. I mean, the rates ain't the there rates ain't changed, trust me. <laughs> Shout out to you. So so just being around that, I think that kind of sunk in through osmosis. You know, I'm not as angry as my father mm-hmm. was because I feel like I'm not from the generation that got hit over the head with the billy club. We didn't get the blatant racism. We get racism, mm-hmm. but it's a different surgical type of racism. And so that same rage, and it's not that I wasn't self-aware, didn't have the third eye open about what's happening in this world, but when you have two different experiences, you carry it differently. So for me, you know, humor has always been an escape. I grew up, I have other half-siblings, but I grew up an only child. So I lived in my head a lot. And so, you know, coming back to Birmingham and taking over the morning show, you know, from intern all the way up to host over the course of a decade, you know, there's definitely snippets of here's what we need to be talking about. Here's what the solutions are. Here's something you haven't considered. But I'd say the biggest difference between me and my father is that I just try to be funny while doing it. Talk. I don't. <laughs> my dad was suave, dog. So he could he could be angry and you wouldn't be mad at him. That's a skill right there. That's a, that's a, that's you know, that OG. As a white person, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have... So, talk... If I get mad, I'm mad, and it's clear I'm mad, and the shit ain't funny. <laughs> talk about Birmingham. For folks who ain't been to Birmingham or Alabama, how how has that experience formed the basis for both the work you do on stage, but also your philanthropic work? Because you do a lot in your hometown that folks outside of Birmingham may not know. Yeah, I mean, first off, if you're talking Birmingham and you're talking Alabama, you're talking two different That's places. That's true. Now, that is... Because you got, you got Birmingham... You got Lyons County, Dallas, <laughs> Dallas like, County. Like how they say, <laughs> that's, that's about it. Right? It's like how they say you got Atlanta and then you got Georgia. Because yeah. Atlanta ain't Valdosta. <laughs> no, sir. So, you know, Birmingham is a predominantly black city. Like, Shout out to Randall Wolfen. Shout like, out to Mayor Randall Wolfen. Oh, shout out the newly reelected. He Mayor spanked them boys down there. Yeah. To 65%. So... Birmingham, like, like this is how inclusive of a black experience Birmingham could be if if it happens the right way. I don't think, I, matter of fact, I can verify. I didn't meet a Latino until the seventh grade. Mm. Like not a single, like a couple of white people, but predominantly black schools, predominantly black rec centers, predominantly black youth leagues, every black church, all of that. To the point where when I got to college, that was the first time I really met and was around Latinos on a regular. Like, it is a very black experience. And so, in a way, it gives you the pride and the foundation that you need to deal with the BS in the world. But you can easily lose focus on what else is going on around you because you can grow up in such a bubble that's inclusive. But the downside to that is that you also realize, and this is what I learned, and this is what the radio station taught me. Like 95.7 Jams 
we did a lot of charity work um, in neighborhoods around Birmingham. You know, you think of the radio station, it's just this big hype truck with speakers and we pass out the T-shirts, but we were doing Toys for Tot stuff. We were doing suits for 18-year-olds so that they could have something decent to wear to a job interview, job fairs. Just when the tornado hit, we out there helping folks and all of that. And the thing that I learned when I got outside of Alabama was how nobody separated Birmingham from everything else. Nobody, you know, Stephen Reed, his existence as the first black mayor in Montgomery in and of itself is proof of progress. But those things aren't taken into account when people go, ah, Alabama's stupid. I mean, so, same thing with Jackson and Mississippi. Just, <laughs> so then, then, you, then you already know what I'm about to say. If we don't, if folks from Alabama don't save Alabama, Alabama ain't got a chance. Amen to that. So for me, it's always been about figuring out ways to create. Like I try to be the OG that I didn't have. I try to be the mentor I didn't have. I try to just like, the reason why Ricky Smiley is so important to me was that Ricky was the first person from Alabama to get on cable. He got on BT's Comic View and he would scream Alabama at the top of his He would scream Alabama and Omega Sci-Fi. Every episode. So if you're a kid from Birmingham and what they teach you in Birmingham too, and this is the thing that, you know, I don't know if we should even get into this, but there is a degree of let's just get by that our predecessors, Mm -hmm. you know, our parents and our grandparents possess. And a lot of that's because they fought for so long. They tired. I look, I got a house. I got a job. That's enough. I, but for the people that that's not enough for the people that that goal is not enough. Those people will tell you that your dream is invalid or it's insurmountable. Or why are you trying to do all of that? And when I saw Ricky Smiley on that TV, I said, that boy is from three exits up the freeway. So if he can do it, I can do it. And so that's all I try to be to anybody else back in Birmingham. Of course, we have the internet now. The world's a bigger place. You can, your dreams are not as implausible. Yeah. Your goal is not implausible because you can find a network of other dreamers that are on the same, that are in the same lane as you. But, you know, for me, it's important to try and do stuff back at the house that helps to better not just Birmingham, but the whole state. That's the thing I really learned. Comedy Central gave me that pilot. I talked to them. I tricked them white folks and they let me shoot a whole ass TV show in Birmingham. <laughs> we, had, we had a staff of 90. 60 of them was in state. Half the cast was from the state of Alabama. You know, and this is a straight up legit union production. In the union middle of Alabama. In the Civil Rights Day. <laughs> In the middle of downtown Birmingham, where my ancestors was getting cracked over the head, mm. we are shooting a TV show and bringing opportunity. And that's another shout out to Randall Woodfin for helping me, you know, make that happen. You know, the creatives of that didn't work out. And then Viacom bought CBS and then COVID. So just the creative North Star of Comedy Central changed. So the show didn't go, but it was still great to just be like, like, I can't even explain it to you, dog. Like we shot the first scene of that TV show a block from the barbershop where all the black politicians were coming politic on a Saturday. Mm. My daddy included, you know, all the local mayors and leaders and 
the Earl Hilliards of the world and the Bernard Kincaids and the Larry Langford. And <laughs> like, like that. <laughs> like, Birmingham people know Larry Langford. Trust me, yeah. Southern people know. They know the name. So, you know, that, those people cared about the community. I remember, so Larry Langford, he's another important figure. He's a former mayor of Birmingham. He's also the mayor of a suburb of Birmingham called Fairfield. Fairfield is, was and is still a very, very fiscally poor place in terms of just funding for just basic, like the fire department has to wait for the next suburb to bring them water for <laughs> fires. and st- Like it's just, it's weird. It's weird. But I remember Larry Langford coming in the barbershop in Pete Stone Style Shop one day. And he had this idea for a theme park in Birmingham because everybody goes to Atlanta for entertainment. And that's all. That's the biggest issue in Birmingham. Stop spending your money in Atlanta. Because it it's only an hour and so a half. Build it a That's the thing. But then also Birmingham got all, Birmingham got way more Jesus laws than Atlanta. So it's hard to have a good time. Are y'all, no selling, are y'all selling? Are y'all selling? I'm about to say, are y'all selling? Uh, are y'all selling liquor uh, on Sundays yet in Alabama? Maybe you probably can't buy it till three <laughs> thirty. <laughs> you definitely so, don't have no shakeums open. The shakeums got to be closed at, at, at no. twelve. <laughs> it's Waffle House or Taco Bell or go home. <laughs> so Larry Langford coming to barbershop one day and he goes, "I'm gonna build a theme park in Birmingham." And we're going to catch all that traffic from Mississippi. And that's how we're going to get all them folks coming from Mississippi going to Atlanta. They can stop in Birmingham. And they laughed at him. Oh, they laughed at that man about building that theme park. And how dare you think you on the level that could do anything any even similar to that. And I'd be damned if Larry Langford, brick by brick, suburb by suburb, Got everybody on board with Visionland. It's now Alabama Adventure. It's still standing to this day. That's a dream. And he did it. Now, it ain't as big as Six Flags. <laughs> but it served its purpose. <laughs> people still go to Atlanta. <laughs> but in the sense of having an idea of doing something that can that you truly believe will make the city better in spite of what everybody else thinks, I never forgot that. I just, I never, and that just stuck with me on just... That brother was so pro-Birmingham. You uh, talked about Ricky Smiley, but who are your comedic influences? Even more importantly, who is on your stand-up Mount Rushmore? Oh, Mount Rushmore is hard, dog. That's not fair. Four is not enough. Four is what you got, though, unless you Trump. Trump said he's going to add himself to Mount Rushmore. So I give you I give you five. <laughs> Four and an alternate. Four and an alternate. <laughs> Sinbad, Chris Rock. Sinbad doesn't get the credit that he deserves. Sinbad is a MFing beast that doesn't get the credit he deserves because he didn't tour as much or maybe they didn't give him TV as much in the early aughts to remind that next generation. But he goes out on the road and he still sells out. He's one of the few comics where there's three generations of people in the crowd. Mm -hmm. Granddaddy to grandson coming to watch him. The only other person I've seen with that is Paul Mooney and John Witherspoon. Sinbad, Chris Rock, George Carlin. There's a Wanda Sykes slash Whoopi 
thing happening for me in my fourth slot. And there's Chappelle right there as well. Mm. Like, Chappelle is God level. But you asked me influences. Influences, so yeah, 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 for influences. sure. So for me, when we're talking influences, these are the people that I studied at the time. And the library of work was deeper with all of them than it was Chappelle when I started in 98. Whoopi has a way of slowing down a story. And it's and it's tough to still even think of her as a stand-up because she doesn't do it as often anymore. But she's one of the ones where you know she could walk on stage at any moment and just kill and it, it if she wanted to. Wanda yeah, Sykes I is hilarious, too. It. Wanda Sykes is, is a, her whole presence and persona. Well, well, you know why? Because for me, Wanda, it's her vocal inflections. Yeah. And then the moment between when I'm speaking, when I'm just staring, like, what the fuck? Like, she's di- Wanda has a way of discovering the information with the audience at the same time. Instead of, I'm delivering it and I'm waiting for you to catch up, it's, he said this. Now, <laughs> why would anybody yeah. say that? Whereas... I think, you know, a more traditional comic would just go, he said this. And I'm like, why would you say that? Man, you can't even say anything like that. And plow through that moment of contemplation and discovery that the audience is having. Wanda instead sits in that shit. And, you know, it's it's very smooth. It's very, very smooth. But, you know, Martin Lawrence was another one that I used to love watching. But I you could watch, I used to study Martin on mute. Martin and Sinbad are two comedians you can watch on mute and you still laugh, which is a weird skill Talk set. Talk to me about to the skills of, that, of, of like Jamie Foxx, for example. I mean, is he, a, is he considered to be an entertainer or is he a comedian? He's a comedian. His roots are comedy. For as long as you start in comedy, your roots will forever be that. Mm. I consider John Oliver a comedian. Hell, Richard Belzer from Law & Order. <laughs> He started as a comedian. I didn't know that. <laughs> OG detective on Law and Order. You've only known him as a serious, straight-faced ass <laughs> cop. No, he's a comic. So that's always there. Like you can see, and you can see it in Jamie when he hosts stuff. Yeah, you still see the stand-up muscle in there. Go watch Beat Shazam. It there, there's there's glimmers, glistens of it in there. Um, I would consider Jamie a more all-around entertainer where comedy is just one of the tools in the Swiss Army knife. He's kind of like Sed the Entertainer in a yeah, way. The man, you should have seen Sed's right. suit at the Emmys. Boy. I saw that gold ass. <laughs> <laughs> that boy looked like an unwrapped Easter egg. Like a cat. Respect. Let me ask you this. I, I, asked, show this to I, asked, I asked comedians this question or comics this question and it's a question of cancel culture and political correctness. Or the idea that it's harder for comedians in this environment to do what comics do when there's so many vocal constituencies that could take issue to your content. Do you think it's harder to be a comic now with Twitter and the constantly evolving standards of what's acceptable than it was, say, in 2000 when you were first starting out? Yeah, I think it's. I think it's harder, but I don't think it's insurmountable. Yeah. Your job as the comedian is to adjust. You know, you have two options. You can adjust or you can go against the grain. So you can either 
You can either Richard Pryor it, like Richard Pryor, you know, Lenny Bruce it, because when you look back at stand-up in the 60s where comics were getting arrested, off George Carlin would get arrested for just saying curse words, or just saying the words. So I don't think this time is really any different. There's just a public sentiment where we don't want you to do a certain thing where you're performing. So you can either push back against it and deal with whatever consequences come of that. I don't think that you should just be sitting around complaining <laughs> that people don't like what you're saying now. I think that's a waste of time. Or make a make a joke about it and go put that on stage and deal with whatever comes mm. on the other side of that. But just be prepared and be ready to deal with it. But there might be new consequences for things that there weren't previously consequences for. I say for. all the time. I so, mean, I, I tell folk all the time. It's, we don't have cancel culture per se. We just got consequences. I mean, and you deal with those as they— That's it. It's like, because then you could, if you didn't want to do that, then you could have swerved during that same time period. Flip Wilson didn't get arrested. He saw what they were doing. He was like, eh, no, nah, I won't do that anymore. Or I'm never going to go down that path. So every comedian has a choice in what they choose to do. And I think that even within outrage, even within topics where people aren't quote unquote outrage, there's still pushback. There's still people that don't want to hear stuff. The thing that I'm more, the thing that I take more of an issue with now is how vocally opposed we can be to comedic thought before the joke is even fully fleshed out, before the joke is fully worked out on stage. And that's the thing that I don't like. I don't like the fact that comedy is one of the few art forms that's created and it's honed in front of the consumer. So you have to find where the line is as a performer. And sometimes if you step over that in the early beginnings of working and fleshing out a joke, they'll chop your head off and say bye-bye. And that part of it I don't like, but I don't know how you solve that problem other than bagging the phones and creating comedy in more understood, creatively expressive places. We did that this summer in New York. I had a couple shows called The Test Kitchen, where it's myself and a bunch of other comics just trying out new material. We told the audience it was new material. Understand that there may be some... But just know this is how we have to figure out where the lines are. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Now give me your get now give, give me, me your, your phone. Because I still don't trust you. <laughs> Putting your phone in a bag where you can't fucking talk about talk about your upcoming comedy special in the last few minutes we have on Comedy Central. What makes this different from your last but special? And without spoiling it, with some of the material that you cover. No, we can spoil it. I like I don't care like I'm just trying my like this and this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about about how people can be outraged before even hearing you out man I got on stage and was trying to explain something about the troops the relationship between the police and the troops right in the sense of hero worship in this country and basically what I said in the bit, like the, the basic point that I was trying to make or, you know, ultimately trying to get to was that cops get great retirement, but no respect. Troops get all the respect in the and world, no retirement. but a terrible retirement. So which job would you choose, you know? And when you look at, I'm trying to think of a way to put it without giving away the joke, but put in the right context. All right, so like, if you're a cop, who deliberately wants to be a bad cop, right? You're a cop who wants to be a bad cop. You're not a good cop. 
you're a bad cop. I'm here to lock everybody up and I'm planting I'm crack sprinkle on a little, Sprinkle a little crack on you. I'm doing everything I can to send all of y'all to prison. There's more consequences for that now. There's, it ain't fixed, it ain't perfect, but it's a far more dangerous risk to be taken if you're a dirty cop. If you're a dirty troop, you might get away with it. So if you wanted to be a terrible person, wouldn't it be better to be terrible within the job that allows you to that be has far less checks that has far less checks and balances. Now that's the basic thesis statement. Now, that's not the whole special, but you know we're we're delving into you know just a little bit of. I, I, you know, I, I, I want to I want to hear that now. You, you got to flesh. I can't wait to hear that fleshed out. Because you, it, it's you know like you don't hear much about military like when you hear about military corruption, it's got to be something crazy. True. But you know there's corruption in the military because they have their own jail. You know how many people got to be messing up for the military to have, hey, look, don't even go to that jail. We got our don't own Don't even worry jail. about it, prosecuting them. We got them. We don't even want you in regular jail giving away Army secrets. So you come on to the Army jail. <laughs> you know? So it's... But that's, but that's the tightrope, right? So I'm trying to walk through those points in a city like Austin. I was in Texas. You start talking sideways about them troops, and it's not sideways about the troops. It's about the system that's in place. But people don't always hear that. They just hear a word, and they immediately go into, I must attack you now because you said a word, and I did not hear a positive word right behind. You said the word troop, and you did not say, give it up for the, in the same sentence. Therefore, this must be a bad joke. And it's not. It's a complete acknowledgement of just how screwed they are. And then the fact that they bring them back from war to a baseball game and fly a jet over their head and make us think they honoring them. First off, why would you fly a jet over somebody's? I just left war. Why would you recreate war at the baseball game? I'm I'm here with my babies. I ain't seen them in two tours. And the first thing you do is bring a jet and then you got dudes out there with rifles and, and parachutes. Blanks. And parachutes. What am I, what am yeah. I supposed to think? Some dude parachuting down. Like what? <laughs> What is happening? Man, when was so, this airing and how can people watch it? Man, it's Friday, October 29th. And if you miss it, it'll be on Paramount Plus streaming on that. Man, I love Paramount Plus, man. That's so, my... in perfect messenger, man. I, You know, I appreciate anybody who wants to watch it, man, and check man, it we out. Will. And, you know, we will. Tell me this. What other, before I let you go, any other new projects you're working on? What's what's on the horizon for Roy Wood Jr.? Ooh, we're laying low right now. We, we sold the script. Uh, to NBC, myself and the creator, Carolyn Pierre Outler, about a black woman doctor in Harlem that's trying to save her family practice. So we got that in development over at NBC. Uh, speaking of the military, um, I'm playing, um, I sold a script as well with Dennis Leary to Fox, where I run a National Guard unit, and it just follows the unit on their deployments. It's a it's a comedy, but, you know, it, like because that's the other thing. The National Guard on the low be doing a lot of dope stuff, and they don't get no credit. <laughs> whatsoever. So we're gonna try and change that narrative about the National Guard, but a little man, bit. Man, sound like man. So let me hold something, man. Let me hold something, man. You said selling this and I got selling a five that. Year old dog. Man, I got two, I got three, two, two, two and a half year olds. They'll be three in January, so trust me, I understand. And a wife. Right, well, then you need to come so. up. 
Oh, but then you definitely need to come on the Daily Show and work with yeah, me. Yeah, I need. I'm looking for all the jobs. Also, the Daily Show. Oh, yeah. At 11. <laughs> tell, tell them I said what's happening, man. Roy Wood Jr., thank you for coming on the show, man. It's always an honor. Shout out to Birmingham, man. Alabama. What's that, 205? 205. 205, man. Be easy, man. God bless your family, man. Okay.